You're listening to Arts Roundup on Cambridge 105. I'm Simon Burton and a very warm welcome to Cambridge Arts Roundup, though my teeth are chattering from the cold just now. As Cambridge braces itself for the inevitable round of snow and ice and the need for inspiration of some sort to get us through the winter months... Well, as I've discovered, there's actually no lack of things to grab your interest lately as the city sees the opening of new galleries and restaurants. Artists share the fruits of lockdown and writers produce new and interesting books to read and even the poets take a warm chair by the fire and recite. In this edition, we join scientific historian Patricia Farrer to sample her new book, Life After Gravity, Isaac Newton's London Career, as it becomes highly topical for all sorts of controversial reasons. And her husband, poet Clive Wilmer, gives a recital of some new work that touches us deep. We join Cambridge artist Samuel Benjamin Harris to look at his astounding new work, exhibiting at Expresso Library and the Stolen Lickerloft Restaurant after a productive lockdown painting spree. Extraordinary Objects Gallery owner Carla Lee Solar invites people in to sample a new slant on art for the home in Green Street as she showcases sculptures made from meteors and fossils and a new 2022 programme pulling in art lovers across the city. You may have just heard that a manuscript notebook of 18th century Cambridge icon Sir Isaac Newton's writings, thought lost for over 350 years, has just been added to Cambridge University Library's collection. The notebook belonged to Newton's long-time friend and collaborator, John Wickens. He kept it while he was Newton's roommate at Trinity College. It features 12,000 words in English and 5,000 in Latin, and is the longest collection of Newtonian writing to be discovered in the last half-century. Newton is regarded as one of the greatest mathematicians and physicists of all time and famously formed three laws of motion and the law of gravity. Well, that's how Cambridge would remember him as a brilliant academic. But the last 30 years of Newton's life in London is just as incredible, revealing intrigue, his role in the slave trade and the life of a rich and powerful man at odds with his rivals. It's the topic of a new book by Patricia Farrer, a historian of science at Cambridge University, and I was lucky enough to be invited for interview on what turns out to be an intensely interesting subject. Just a few lines from a much longer poem by Elizabeth Tollett, who was the poet who knew Isaac Newton when she was a child and who was a very, very gifted mathematician as well as a poet. And she's my favourite poet because it's me that discovered her, basically. These are the lines... What cruel laws depress the female kind to humble cares and servile tasks and find? That haughty man, unrivalled and alone, may boast the world of science all his own, as barbarous tyrants to secure their sway conclude that ignorance will best obey. First of all, Patricia, tell me about yourself. What's your background? I've got a degree in physics from Oxford. I've never done any physics since I left. I went into computers and then I changed and became a professional historian of science when I was in my early 40s. So I've had two different careers. Um, This is your second book about Newton. Was this an enormous task to put together? The reason I chose to write about Newton originally was because that was back uh, in the end of the last century. And I was a woman and I was determined not to get classified as a woman's historian. So I deliberately chose the most prominent man that I could to write about. And I had great fun. Sometimes I would give talks and there would be, sorry if this is being genderist, but there there were often elderly men in the audience who looked at me with great contempt and said, well, of course you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know about the physics, do you? And I would just look at them and say, yes, I do. I've got a degree in physics from Oxford. And it was most satisfying statement to make. This book reveals much of what isn't commonly known to the public about Newton, because obviously we see him as this um, mathematical icon, this, yes. this godlike figure from Cambridge University invented the theory of gravity. But actually, his, when you look at his whole life, he's actually a very intriguing man, isn't he? Well, his life divides roughly into three different 
equal period. So the first 20, 25 years of his life, he was brought up in Lincolnshire and he was a young man. He went back to Lincolnshire during the plague that forced him to leave Cambridge. And then the middle third of his life, he spent as a student and a scholar in Cambridge. And that's the period that's best known, I think. But then there's another 30 years, which, yes, historians do know about but it's mostly historians of science who've written about Newton, and they're not particularly interested in what they see as rather a waste of his very keen intelligence, where, in fact, his role rather resembled that of the head of the Bank of England. I mean, he was making key decisions which affected the nation's economy as well as its coinage. What kind of a man was he before he left academia? And then he made this break with Cambridge, didn't he? And then the man that he became after... Well, it's very difficult to tell exactly what he was like because there's so many different conflicting stories about him. There's a lot of gossip, there's a lot of mythology. He certainly was an enormously intelligent man. He was very secretive. He shunned the limelight when he was at Cambridge. But once he came to London, he seems to have been a completely different character. He was president of the Royal Society, entertaining foreign visitors. He was running the Royal Mint. He was very, very, meticulous and quite obsessive that his papers there's, there was the volumes and volumes of unpublished manuscripts and that there's tables of figures that he compiled when he was at the Royal Society and at the Royal Mint comparing different currencies and the attention he paid to that was very similar to the attention he paid to astronomical data and also very similar to the numerical attention he paid paid to ancient dynasties and the chronology of ancient kingdoms and to deciphering the Bible. Whatever he turned his attention to, he did with great obsession. Now, he's starting off with this um, mathematical and scientific um, talent, which then became um, a talent for um, making money, basically, in the end. She made it for the Royal Mint and various other people. Now, there's a quote in your book which says, the first of all English games is making money. And he played that game very well after he left Cambridge. By the time he died, he was... Not the wealthiest man in Britain, but he was really pretty much up there. He earned much more than someone like Alexander Pope or Samuel Johnson, other famous people of the 18th century that we've all heard of. And he had several different sources of money. One was that he invested heavily in the stock market, so he was involved in the South Sea bubble. He invested in the East India Company and other similar companies which were involved in great global trade, which unfortunately, from our perspective now involved shipping African captives uh, across to the Americas to work on the plantations. So he made money like that. He also made money for every single coin that was minted at the Royal Mint. He earned a percentage. Now the South Sea bubble has been called the world's first financial crash, the world's first Ponzi scheme, a speculation mania and disastrous example of what can happen to people who, who fall prey of group thinking. And it was a catastrophic financial crash uh, and it no doubt some of the greatest thinkers of the time succumbed to it including um, Newton himself. Estimates vary but it reportedly he lost as much as 40 million of today's money in the scheme. What actually happened? Well uh, as far as Isaac Newton was concerned what he did was he invested in a new venture something that looked profitable. He watched the share price rise and he very sensibly sold and made a substantial profit and then he watched the price continue to go up and he did what would now seem a classic mistake of going in at higher than he'd sold for and sitting there and watching until the price suddenly fell very abruptly. In his slight defence, this was a new scheme, a lot of other people got burnt as well because they'd never seen anything like it before. And also there was a huge amount of corruption. I mean, people talk about corruption in the stock market now, but it was nothing compared with what was going on then. And basically the Crown wanted to raise money because they, uh, the King had been engaging in too many wars and there were backhanders flying around all over the place so it was very difficult for an outsider to make a profit from it. Um, so I mean the government was basically hoping to pay off um, debt with slavery um, and the rich were hoping to um, to, to, to make get rich quickly um, off the back of it and live a life of luxury in, 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 in this uh, in this era that Newton lived in. So it was um, an incredibly um, important bubble. Now obviously in the current era of anti-slavery 
slaver heritage backlash when the 19th century slaver Edward Coulson's statue was thrown into the harbour in Bristol by an angry mob feeling that it was an affront to black people of the city um, and of course uh, at the end of it Boris Johnson just said it was a, a criminal act. Now those people have been acquitted um, for um, having done it um, only today so it's a quite a topical issue isn't it what, what happened at the beginning of slavery and we're also looking um, very much at the fact that um, Prince Charles has just handed back Barbados which was the first great slaving place you yeah. know during the, the, the slaving era so it makes um, it makes Newton once again someone who people will probably want to um, focus upon as being partly responsible for what was happening. Well yes uh, I so he, there's no evidence that he actually engaged in slavery himself on the other hand he certainly supported enterprises that did and one of his responsibilities as Master of the Mint was to make sure that he got the best possible price for the African gold that he was buying and obviously if if the Royal Mint of Great Britain got a very good price that meant probably that the the people who were actually digging the gold out of the earth were obviously getting a very very poor price and suffering enormously uh, but uh, that was quite common practice. Britain became wealthy in the 18th century on the back of the slave trade I mean, in a way you could blame the entire British nation and some people did object but the abolition movement was quite slow to get moving it wasn't really until the end of the 18th century that there was really a substantial objection to slavery um, and even um, figures like um, Alexander Pope were involved in the South mm. Sea bubble, I mean it, it seems incredible um, that the, the whole the whole idea, the whole subject of, of black oppression yeah. is still um, is still in, in, the, in the headlines today you know, and the, this whole issue has not gone away at all. Absolutely um, and one, one thing at the end of the 18th century there was a boycott on sugar from the West Indies and that was very effective because it meant that people stopped buying sugar which meant that the government lost all the tax that they were collecting from sugar sales and the marvellous thing about it was for the first time ever disenfranchised people without the vote, all women men who didn't own any property probably quite a lot of them African immigrants themselves could exert political power by refusing to buy sugar. So I think that's, as far as I'm aware, that's the first example of political action in this country that could be taken by everyone, whether or not they had a vote. Now, obviously, slavers in in Newton's era felt that it was their God-given right to exploit slaves. Um, It's an extraordinary mindset, isn't it? Uh, well, there was a lot of genuine debate about the relationship between European people and African people and, and where you drew the line between the different groups and who was responsible for whom. And there were, a, there were substantial groups of people who objected at the time and thought that it was wrong. But on, on the other hand, the whole British economy depended on it. It's um, what James Boswell, Simon, Samuel Johnson's biographer, said we mustn't stop slavery. The whole country will collapse. Um, there was a poem by um, Thomas Moore which emerged um, during this period, which I'm going to read out now, which says, Bubbles bright as ever hope drew from fancy or from soap, bright as ever the South Sea scent from its frothy element. See, but hark, my time is out, now like some great water spout, scattered by the cannon's thunder, burst ye bubbles, burst asunder. Oh, that's absolutely wonderful. I've never heard that before. That's a marvellous rhyme. Yeah, so that, that arose as, as a result of the, the, yeah, the there, South Sea there were a lot. I mean, there was the Hogarth drawings, and there were mm. lots of poetry, and people mm. like Daniel mm. Defoe mm. were very sceptical. Yeah. Mm. Now, were there two kinds of aristocrats during uh, in the top of society during this era? Um, true noblemen, who wouldn't have anything to do with, with such a smutty enterprise and then then the kind of um, slaver type who had made a fortune off the back of these kind of enterprises um, I, I think it was more that there was there was a division into the traditional aristocracy and the nouveau riche, the people who'd made a lot of wealth in the industrial midlands and just rather like now, the traditional aristocracy were f- getting rather short of money so they quite often married their daughters off to, the, to these newly rich sons so there was a lot of social mixing at the end of the 18th and the beginning of the 19th century which was quite unusual and if you think of the French Revolution where there was a 
still a very stark division between the peasants and the nobility. That wasn't true in this country. There was a lot of intermarriage and social movement. Now, now as um, Newton grew in um, fame and wealth, um, he also tried to establish an aristocratic pedigree for himself, didn't he? He did. He was knighted by his friend, and it might or might not be coincidence that his uh, friend uh, was the Earl of Halifax, was fairly obviously having an, a protracted affair with Isaac Newton's niece, who was his housekeeper. So that may or may not be a relevant factor, but Isaac Newton was knighted in 1705 in Cambridge, and he spent the whole summer, this man who was supposedly completely uninterested in worldly matters, spent his whole summer tracing back his family tree several generations. And he went back a couple of centuries and then down again the other side, and he found this very, very, very distant cousin who was called Sir John Newton and he wrote to Sir John Newton and borrowed his coat of arms the crossed bones but but he liked fine wines he entertained lavishly at his houses he he had fantastic fortunes which he used to extravagantly spend on all his friends didn't he? Well there was an inventory of his property when he died and it covered 17 feet of a vellum scroll and it's got countless plates and silver cutlery and candles and pictures and chairs and all that sort of stuff but my favourite two items are the two silver chamber pots that was evidently a Georgian item of luxury. Now Hogarth's paintings provide us with um, a backdrop and a frame of reference um, in your book. Why are they so important and the art of the era also is something that you're interested in, isn't it? I am interested and I chose to focus on a particular picture that really hasn't had much written about it uh, called The Indian Emperor and it's a scene that takes place in the drawing room of Hogarth, of Newton's niece and the man who married him, who also became master of the mint. And there's a bust of Isaac Newton on the mantelpiece staring out across the scene. The whole picture is full of Newtonian symbolism. So, for example, there's a royal governess and she's telling her daughter to pick up a fan that's fallen through the power of Newtonian gravity. The prompter of a children's play is Newton's experimental assistant. And then the four children, four aristocratic children are on the stage and they're performing a play by John Dryden about when the Spaniards colonised South America. And it's all about gold and European possession. So it's very relevant for what was happening in uh, in Africa during the early 18th century. Well, I mean, he was involved in, in, in intrigues of one sort or another. And he also had quite a few enemies, didn't he, um, during his time in, in, in oh, London? Oh, he... he cultivated enemies. He was a serial slanderer. There were several of the major ones. I mean, one of the most famous is Gottfried Leibniz, the German mathematician. They had a protracted row about who invented calculus first. There was John Flamsteed, the astronomer royal, and they had a huge argument about who owned astronomical observations. And then there was Robert Hooke, the very, very clever, ingenious inventor who most famous now, I think, for Hooke's Law and for his microscope. And they absolutely loathed each other. So Newton got involved in these intense rows. The famous quotation, if I have seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. And he wrote that in a letter to Robert Hooke, who'd accused him of plagiarism. And it seems to me that there's two meanings in that. One is that if I'd chosen to steal somebody's ideas I would have stolen a giant's ideas not yours and then secondly something which we would not countenance now Hook was very small he was very severely disabled he had some terrible curvature of the spine so for Newton to say I would have stood on the shoulders of giants meant well I wouldn't stand on your shoulders because you're disabled and diminutive. Um, Wow so he could be very nasty and he hated Catholicism as an Anglican calling it an entirely false religion. Well he wasn't even really an orthodox Anglican he was what's called an Arian and Arians don't believe in the divinity of Christ Uh, he was certainly deeply 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 religious but he claimed that only God was holy. Arianism is a sort of precursor of what we now call Unitarianism. So he was fervently anti-Catholic, but he wasn't an Orthodox Anglican either, and he got exempted from the normal vows of allegiance to the Church of England that have to be taken by fellows of Trinity College. I mean, he did have a, a lot of very important women who were 
friends of his. And I think it was Elizabeth Tollett, is it? Oh, Elizabeth Tollett was a poet Mm. uh, who was the daughter of a naval officer, and she met Newton. She was a very, very talented mathematician. She's the sort of woman who now would be in the Royal Society. Uh, But, of course, as a woman, she had very little opportunity to practice her maths, but she wrote a lot of poetry, and she met Isaac Newton several times. A more famous woman that he knew very well was Princess Caroline, who later became Queen Caroline, George II's wife. And he was very, very friendly with her. She was very interested in all his religious arguments. But she also played a key role in the theological debates between Leibniz and Newton. And there was a very famous book published about the religious differences between them. And although her name typically isn't on the cover... Princess Caroline was enormously influential in conducting this debate and arguing uh, with Isaac Newton about his religious beliefs. Now, Elizabeth Tollett was an important figure in so much as she established links between science, art and poetry. Um, In an era when women found it very difficult to rise to prominence, Mm. these were women who who were powerful and and, and did things. And, And there were also friends at court who were... Um, female intelligences uh, who were spies and things oh, like well, that. that so there were a lot of very, very sort of talented um, and prominent women involved. In oh, well. there were quite a lot of royal, royal women mm. who sort of smuggled it. I mean, it was quite easy for a woman to sort of tie something, in, sew something into her petticoat and smuggle it around. Yes, there was a lot of espionage going on. I don't think Elizabeth Tollett wasn't particularly influential. She was someone I found out about. So that that was truly an original piece of research, whereas a lot of the other research in the book I'd borrowed from other people. But um, I, I think she's a fantastically interesting example of women who existed, but are very, very hard to find out information about, because they very rarely publish. It's like female musicians. There's lots of music uh, that they've written, which is hidden away in the archives, but it very rarely got published, it very rarely got performed, and it was the same with poetry, and a lot of women published poetry anonymously. She could. Al- she was also fluent in Latin. She translated from Latin to English and vice versa. She was a very, very gifted woman. Okay, so his, what about his friend Charles Montague, who remained his friend and supporter throughout his career, because he was a tremendously influential man who Newton was great friends with. Charles Montague is the same as the Earl of Halifax. It's uh, very uh, confusing. Uh, 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 He's got about three different names. <laughs> he, was, he was also Chancellor of the Exchequer. He was younger than Newton. Uh, Newton had known him at Trinity. Um, he was Newton's major patron. He was the man who landed Newton the job at the Mint. And he was the man who was having an affair with Newton's niece. Um, They remained very close friends. Newton very sensibly never had an argument with him because you need a rich, influential patient. Now, Newton became a ministerial agent, giving scholarly support and and also minting diplomatic gifts and medals by craftsmen to oil the wheels of state. Um, And so he became quite an important diplomatic person as well, didn't he? Well, he was. I mean, he he was definitely very pro-Queen Anne, who um, uh, was queen a lot of the time that he was mint. He he made several medals to support her around. He was a very keen supporter... um, of William before before the revolution and there's several places where we don't know where Newton was or what he was doing at Trinity College if you went away for a few weeks you had to sign out and then sign in again when you came back but you didn't have to tell anybody where you'd gone so there's several gaps in the chronology and we have no idea where Newton was or what he was doing and one suggestion is is that he was raising support for William against James. Um, okay, so Newton also had an, an assistant called Desiguarius, who yes. was um, an influential Freemason. What was behind that? Well, a, a quite a high percentage, sort of possibly up to a quarter of the Royal Society were Freemasons. I'm not sure exactly how significant that was, although there's great historical debate about it. Desaguliers was a French Huguenot who came over at the end of the 17th century, and for a while he was master of the Grand Lodge of of Great Britain. And it was quite handy because he spoke French because he was a Huguenot. So he went backwards and forwards to Masonic meetings in Paris, and he was... And he travelled all over Britain as well to Masonic meetings. And it meant he could sort of mix Newtonianism 
with his Masonic endeavours. So a, a lot of people in France who really did not accept Newton's ideas. So he played a key role in persuading the French that Descartes was wrong and Newton was right. Now, Newton became president of the Royal Society in 1703 and he published um, a couple of books, didn't he? One was Principia. Well, the Principia, that was the second and third editions. The first edition came out in 1687. Um, uh, Optics, his second um, book was, um, I mean, comparable with Hawking's A Brief History of Time or something like that, wasn't it, in ma- mathematical? Well, it was, it, was more, it was a summary of a lot of work that he'd done earlier. Mm-hmm. He very sensibly waited until Robert Hooke had died because Robert Hooke accused him of pinching a lot of his experiments. And it was also a sort of anti-French manifesto that you should do science experimentally, not theoretically like the French. So it was a very popular book. It was in English, and people could understand it, unlike the Principia. You had to, well, you had to speak Latin, but you also had to be very, very good at maths. So, I mean, he, he, he'd come by, uh, by this point in his life as a, as a man of great stature, really, in society. Oh, he, he, went, he <laughs> was very... But when he was buried, he had something like um, 20 horses pulled the funeral carriage, and Voltaire was mm. over here, and Voltaire said, so I mean, this, is, this is the man who's, uh, whose funeral had all the pomp and ceremony of a king. Um, and also, he had um, people like Jonathan Swift um, satirised him as well, so... Uh, Swift had a go at him a few times, didn't he? Well, uh, Swift was especially concerned about the currency there were, um, because what Isaac Newton did was uh, try to take over the Irish Mint. The Irish wanted some new money uh, and Isaac Newton had it manufactured in Bristol and he didn't... Uh, well, Swift accused him of not monitoring it properly, so he accused Newton of loading all this sort of dud currency onto Ireland, and that was that was the main reason why he launched a very anti-Newtonian campaign. Swift had also been a friend, I don't know to what extent an item, but certainly a very close friend of Catherine Barton. So he'd, he'd been in Newton's house, he knew what Newton was like, and he'd heard a lot of the gossip from Catherine Barton. She was a great, she was a great gossip and scandalmonger. Now, um, he, he, he um, presided over a lot of innovations at the Royal Mint with uh, coinage, and, and he, he was involved in um, speculations over currency, but he also did things like pursuing forgers, clippers, thieves fraudsters and gangsters on behalf of the mint and um, and people um, he became a scientific sleuth uh, someone who was going after these people as well, that was something else he did wasn't it well yeah there was a bit like Holmes and Moriarty there was a guy called Chaloner that he especially especially detested and who was very very clever counterfeiter and what Newton used to do was uh, pay for men that he employed to dress up in disguise and sort of, and sort of go in like spies to all the local pubs and f- find out penetrate all the criminal networks so that he could denounce them. And people got executed for forgery. I mean, he would send them to Newgate, which was a pretty horrible fate, but then quite a lot of them were hanged. Um, Now, the Royal Society, which had its very mercenary interest, didn't it, in terms of the way it treated the world, what do you think were the consequences of Newton's actions in the world in the end? Um, How much of an impact did he make on um, Britain and the world at large? Well, I think... Personally, I think one of the biggest effects that he had was to insist that everything can be quantified, everything can be uh, treated in numbers. And now everything that we do at the moment is all subject to charts and diagrams and time and motion studies, and everything's assessed in terms of quantity uh, as much as in terms of quality. I mean, even quality is given a numerical scale. So I think this insistence that the whole whole universe, including human life and natural life, can be expressed in terms of equations, I think that's a very important Newtonian legacy. Well, if you think um, the standard model of Newtonianism, you've got the sun at the centre of the universe and all the planets revolving round it. And then you, you, the symbolism is you've got the king or the queen with all their subjects revolving around them. Then you've got the head of the family, who was always a father, uh, and all the, the children and the mother are revolving around um, the father. And then you've got Britain is at the centre of the world 
with all the other countries revolving around Britain and subordinate to it. Mm-hmm. Wow, yeah. So, so uh, the he, whole world, the empire, you could say the empire, is very much built on a central Newtonian model. So it's, it's, a, it's a fantastically interesting um, person to focus on um, as a scientific historian because he there's just so much in his life, which, which you know, I, I knew nothing of all of these things until I'd read your book, and, and it's an absolutely fascinating read. And Patricia, thank you very much for writing it. OK, well, thank you very much for talking to me. <laughs> After that amazing interview, Patricia's husband, poet and academic Clive Wilmer, kindly joined us to recite some of his moving poems. Wilmer describes Ruskin as overwhelmingly the most important influence on his life. He's lived and worked in Cambridge for much of his life, and his poetry draws its intellectual and geographical backbone from the city and from architecture in general, but also from civic life, engaging with the principles drawn from Ruskin and religion. Despite his long association with the city and the University of Cambridge, Wilmer's worked primarily as a freelance writer and teacher with honorary posts at various colleges and institutions. His poetic stories, taken as a whole, reveal human nature, with each human voice being brought to life to refresh past events and bring a moral sense to how we live now. Clive, you, you brought some poems here to read to us. What's the backdrop to them? Well, I'm reading these really because they're recent, relatively recent, and I haven't written a great, I haven't written very much poetry in recent years. So these are two poems I happen to like a lot. And they're also two poems that Patricia expressed liking for. So I'd like to dedicate them to her. Far away. The first poem is called The Old Men at the Swimming Pool, which is a poem, it's a reminiscence of childhood, when I used to go swimming in the early morning and used to encounter a group of very, very elderly men who were very fit and had their daily swim, even in the coldest weather. The old men at the swimming pool were tanned, even in winter. They were fit and strong. Each morning early they would sprint along the hundred yards of poolside, stretch and bend, do press-ups, then dive in at the deep end. Their skin was like cracked leather, It was slung roughly across their bones, their muscles strung in loose alliance, waiting to disband. Or so it seems in retrospect. I'm told that one bleak New Year's morning, with no moon, when boys like me were sleeping, the old men cracked a stiff film of ice across the bath, then lined up at the edge to plunge beneath, into the darkness and the silent cold. second one is um, called Robin Indoors. I like birds a lot, but with reservations, as you'll see. Robin Indoors. The soft felt robin that my children gave me one Christmas years ago still perches up there on the picture rail as if to save me the trouble of going out into the snow. It does seem to belong inside the house, despite its looking so convincingly perky and red-breasted and smart, like a robin caught among beeches and birches, ready with all of a robin's art to dribble out its unending dribble of song. Unlike the robin I spied in the shade of my living room, when coming in from the delicate late afternoon light one day, I found that evening had already come inside, and in the growing gloom was a bird poised on the mesh foliage of a chair cover, trapped, as it were, there in a large cage. It went into a bait, and I with it, It batted itself from wall to wall, its shit scribbled across the air. And though I could hold my ground, it was with a kind of frenzy that I sought some rational means to drive the wild thing out. Uh, I've spent quite a lot of time in recent years in Venice, and this is a poem I wrote there. It's called Approaching San Polo, Venice. The space between the rooftops opens up, and there, on a high gable in the gap, an angel has touched down, as if he were 
a bird of passage, blown off course, secure in mastery of the air, and yet dismayed at finding himself here, his life mislaid on a strange planet where the creatures die, not understanding why. Clive Wilmer, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Simon. If you're off to walk down King Street in Cambridge, you've probably noticed the frontage of Stolen and Lickerloft Restaurant has superb and colourful artwork across it, and it's the work of local artist Samuel Benjamin Harris. What I didn't know was that he was such a prolific artist lately in the city, and as well as exhibiting many works inside the venue, has also been exhibiting an Expresso Library as part of their new art platform for new emerging and established artists. In most recent months, Samuel's work won the Oak Bistro Award. The award-winning works were showcased within the Cambridge Invitational Art Contest and Exhibition in 2021, held at Castle Art Grand Arcade. He kindly took time out to show me his work just before Christmas. Here with me now is Samuel Benjamin Harris. We're at Espresso Library and we're taking in the fantastic sight of all of the amazing paintings which he's done during lockdown. <laughs> Thank uh, you very much. It's good to see you again, Sam. Yeah, it's good to see you. You must be very proud of the work that you've got on display here. Oh, very proud. I'm really happy. I've had a, well, it's been a tough two years lockdown, but I've been able to produce a lot of work. And then with that, I've been able to focus on a little bit more of the paintings that I want to do. And it shows here at this uh, exhibition. Tell me a little bit about yourself. What's your background and how did you become an artist? But I've been painting ever since a young child. As coming through the, the ranks, GCSE, then I went to A-level Art Foundation, but I moved towards more graphic design. With that, um, I went to Norwich University of the Arts and got my BA in graphic design, but with that degree, I also found out that I never wanted to stand or sit in front of a computer ever again, and that's where I went back to painting, and I'm um, really enjoying it. Um, what do you aim to do with your art? What's, what's it all about? To what, for me, what I'm concerned, I, I just enjoy it. So what I do is I have a spare few moments and I paint. That's what is my like my hobby, but also I like doing exhibitions. I do like my paintings to also give other people joy. They like them, they buy them, and then that gives me enough money to then buy more materials and keep painting more. Well, what happens when you paint? Um, because you have a very wide range of subject material that you choose, and it's very exciting work. Do you just choose a subject um, in a very arbitrary way and decide to focus on it? Very, mu- very much so. It's normally something that pops up in, pops into my head or something that I go, oh, that would be a great image, oh, that would be a great painting, that, or that would be even fun to paint. And that's where then you start building up and you're thinking, right, let's think about this. And normally the painting turns out totally different to what I started off thinking about, but it's got the same gist and that's where I just build up the colour and uh, just have fun and be in, a, be in the mood, be in the moment with painting. Uh, looking at some of the images around here, you have this tremendous banana, which I see on the wall, which is, um, it, it's, um, it's a, it's a, in many ways, it's a slightly sort of grotesque banana in some ways, it's <laughs> extremely large, um, and it has this electrifying blue all the way around the outside. What happened when you painted that? And what, you know, so that was actually, um, actually inspired by the great Jean-Michel Basquiat, um, and he painted a banana, and I thought, right, well, if he's done it, I'll do it, and then see how my banana comes out there. The blue behind is pretty much, I can't say I have a favourite colour because the others get jealous, but that blue is probably my favourite colour, the electric blue. That's how I started and then build up until you've got a lovely banana. Now, it's a very playful technique that you use, isn't it? Because you're not, you're not painting a banana um, to look like a banana. You're, you're, you're celebrating a banana, right? <laughs> <Basically, laughs> That's you know? very nice. That's very nice. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, it, it, it's fantastically colourful. And you've chosen lots of other images here. I mean, I see one here of a bucking bronco, which is a great big canvas with extremely bright yellows and blues and orange and, and, and has a sort of redolent of Spain. Uh, tell me about the story behind that picture. So that's just one I've, I've, I've always wanted to paint, uh, a bucking bronco or a bucking bull. Um, and it's got to the point that I was like, right, I need to get this done. So I started painting it. And uh, I think that wanting to paint a bull as well brought that Spanish colour towards it. And yeah, it's well, it's just a fun. It's also a challenging one. Horses are hard to paint, so sometimes it's it's good to challenge yourself. So I thought, right, try and do try and do a horse. Try and challenge yourself. Um, and you have a very expressive colour palette. Tell me about the paints you use. Oh, so I'm acrylic on canvas. Mm-hmm. I know I've had a lot of other artists saying, oh, you should try out oils or try out oils, and I say, um, wait, don't fix it if, you can't, if it's not broken. And I know, I know acrylic, I know how they work, I know they're vibrant colours, I know I can actually paint them, they're going to dry, and I can paint over them again. And that's where the vibrant colour comes from. I try not to do tonals or anything, try and blur the, 
image, I just thought, right, that's a nice block colour, put it on, and then use colours around it to blend in. Uh, and there's a tremendous centrepiece here um, at one end of Espresso Libraries, Gallery Space, um, which is a, a, a moment you've caught um, having seen a falcon in the street um, you know, near a chimney stack in Cambridge. And you've just grasped that as an image in your mind and produced a incredible painting. Yeah, so um, I, used to work, I used to work on the river uh, punting and walking down to the river, down to Mill Pond, there's, uh, uh, during the spring is the actual peregrine falcons nesting. So what I was trying to uh, get across was like that first flight, the sort of worried look in the falcon's eyes as he falls off, because actually one of them this year actually uh, went to fly and landed on the floor. Um, and I love I that sort of imagery of they just jump they just jump off a tall building and hopefully they it's like walking for the first time but they have to fly. Um, you, you're using that picture of the, the falcon, which is incredible. Has high, it's a very high impact um, image that of a kind of flattened perspective and um, thick outlines in order to um, bulk it up into something that's much more um, that you know. It's not like a photograph in any respect. It's, <laughs> no, it's, definitely it's absolutely not. Absolutely taking it into the world of. Um, of amazing fantasy in many respects, I would say. Yeah, very much so, very much so. Um, I always say there's, there's a skill level, there's a skill set for making like photorealism art. Um, that's not for me, I don't have the patience for it. I like an, an energetic sort of fun time while on the canvas, and that's how my artwork comes out. I try, n- try not to think about too much of making it photorealism and more, no, let's have a bit of fun with this, like, let, let the lines go where they want to go and really trust my ability in what I'm creating. Uh, there's another piece here which show a large pair of feet, one of them um, orange and the other one yellow, standing <laughs> one of my favorites. In, in, in long grass. And we were talking a little bit about uh, that earlier, which is um, capturing a sensation that um, people generally feel at the end of the summer when they take their shoes off. <laughs> exactly that feeling. Um, exactly yeah, that what, feeling. What was that moment in your life that that came about? So, What's the story behind that? Um, um, well, it was more like as a, as a kid and a teenager, I'd... I'd I never wore socks or trainers anywhere. I used to be out always barefoot. And I thought, that's always, always bad. But um, it was actually, actually a friend who was off to Cornwall, and it was his girlfriend I was talking to, and he was, um, he was a bit overworked and stressed at the time, and she just called me and goes, yep, I'm taking him to Cornwall. I'm going to make him take his shoes and socks off and stand in the sand and actually feel the earth. And I was like, well, that's a great feeling. But to be honest, grass is a lot nicer than sand, so that's why I painted it with grass instead of sand. And, so and also, much bacon and eggs for breakfast is featured into a really incredible painting here. But you've also done something quite amazing recently, which is to um, paint the entire front of what was the Cambridge Arms Pub or Dairies. Yeah. Um, and um, that was a fantastic art project. When did you actually do that? Uh, that was, it must be two or three years ago now. Oh, yeah, we've been in lockdown. It's always, it must be three, nearly, maybe even four years ago. Uh, that came about from doing a couple of exhibitions at Dowry's and they said, oh, well, would you fancy doing the side of the building? It's a big project and um, it was, when they asked me to do it, the middle of November, freezing cold and also every ladder that I got was too small to get to the top until I collared in my uh, soon-to-be father-in-law's ladder that got me right to the top and I uh, just started painting and that was a really, really fun project. Well, it's a tremendously high-impact piece of artwork um, in Cambridge, right where everybody can see your work. Yeah. And, and obviously, that, that puts you in great standing locally to have achieved something like that. You it, must be really proud of it. Oh, no, no, yeah, I'm really proud of it. And it's, what's really nice as well is that I get messages from people all the time or friends that have come to Cambridge and they're like, is this you? And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's me, this that massive piece. And also, my signature's right at the top where you can't really see it. Um, right, now you've been working all the way through lockdown, and it, it was for, I think, I mean, for creative people, you could either go one way or the other, which is to get Cambridge pressed or produce art. And you've produced how many paintings all the way through lockdown? So, of them well, so the, the, fir- the first lockdown, I uh, sort of got stung. Uh, by not having any materials with me, so I've got this. Lo- I got this, this lovely project where I had a big. It was like nearly a suitcase full of old art, like, like little bits. And I was like, right, I'm going to f- use up all this all this material. But I only had one canvas that had, did have a painting on it, but the canvas was like falling apart. So I thought, right, I have to do a painting on this canvas inside 24 hours. If it starts, it has to be finished within 24 hours and then uh, whitewashed and painted again. That bit then, it, well, it took me 
well, I think we did 60 days, but it was something like 32 paintings in that 60 days where I'd have a day off or something. I want people to look at my artwork and realise that I had fun painting it, because I really did. I, there's, there's a great mood in all my paintings, and there's that energy and everything. I've put a lot of fun and time into them, and then I want the, the viewer to see that and go, wow, look at that. And then from a distance, it looks like something. When you get closer, you can see the build-up of layers. And it's like it's not just a short process, it's a long process. Well, that's it. There's a great deal of complexity in these images. They're by no means simple in no. any respect, aren't they? I mean, they really are complicated um, things to put together um, to generate those into, into these. It's absolutely amazing paintings. I, mean, I, I recommend to anyone who's passing by Expresso Library to come in and have a look at these because they're really something... Samuel Benjamin Harris, um, fantastic work. Thank you very much indeed for talking to Cambridge 105. Well, thank you very much, Simon. Dare I say it, the new normal didn't look quite so bad this Christmas as the new and upcoming local gallery Extraordinary Objects opened a new exhibition entitled Fairy Tale of New Work in Green Street featuring classic prints and sculptural objects from fossils and meteorites, among other amazing things. Limited edition prints by Banksy, Basquiat, Bridget Riley, David Shringley, Grayson Perry, Helen Beard, Joe Parler, Geordie Kerwick and the Connor Brothers drew in art lovers and a new slant on objects for the home became apparent. You now need something authentic and unexpected from an exotic place to be in vogue. Owner Carla Lee Sola introduced the new mindset that sets her apart from other galleries. I launched Extraordinary Objects as my company about two years ago and it was mainly online and it's just it's kind of merged my passion for contemporary art and natural history. Um, I have been collecting art and natural history since I was quite young and I guess my collection has evolved and when I left my previous job in in London I thought well actually what do I what should I do and just realised there was like a gap in the market for natural history and contemporary art merged together. It's always quite segregated. You know, I think a lot of people don't know that you can buy these amazing pieces. And I think displaying them in a contemporary art setting lets people, I guess, gets people thinking about like their interiors and their collections and that you can actually display like a piece of bone in your home like an extra piece of artwork. I've been looking at whale bones in South Africa which are enormous things yeah. that people are putting in restaurants and in their homes and things like that yeah. because they're fantastic objects and, and you've That's got exactly it. You've extraordinary got some, objects you've got some um, great objects um, on display here can you yeah. tell me a little bit about what you've actually got on display here? So I have a, a variety of fossils minerals and collectibles on display. Um, my I guess the highlights for me are, um, well, a a meteorite from outer space, which is mind-blowing in itself, um, and also a beautiful-looking sculpture. Um, It weighs about 30 kilos, was found in... Argentina, which is like a, there's a big area in Argentina they call the field of, of, of heaven, which is where they find lots of pieces of rock from outer space. So meteorites, um, I have some amazing gogot sculptures, which are sandstone, but look like a Barbara Hepworth, but completely made by nature. And they can only be found one place in the world, which again for me is, is, is quite rare. And again, extraordinary. It's all about the story for me, I think. Um, I also have some Stone Age tools, some Neolithic tools, some dinosaur teeth uh, from really large kind of megalodons to mosasaurs. I, I think that the, the whole subject of universal chance will um, actually be quite popular in the future because of this whole culture of futurism in space uh, and also this incredible story of the meteorite that landed in someone's drive in Yorkshire um, from uh, two billion years away and has suddenly crashed in their drive in, in a ball of flames and, yeah. and owning an object of that sort actually becomes quite prestigious. Uh, 100%, 100%. <laughs> and that's it, there's like so much history and, and so much body and story behind these pieces and and especially they date back so far that it's almost like it's it's almost hard for the mind to comprehend so you start making up your own version of it you know Mm -hmm. Um, and I find the more again that's why I called it Extraordinary Objects because I also find I, I collect art or show 
that the artists that I put on display, I I display because you know I find them you know aesthetically pleasing, and they also have a really rich history themselves. Now, one of those artists is Bridget Riley. Tell me about that. Yes. What, what, what have you got here that's by Bridget Riley? It's a print, is it? It's a print. So yeah, I mean, I would love to be able to have a Bridget Riley original, but unfortunately, you know, that's the aim. But um, again, I'm just a huge fan of the artist, and um, I have one limited edition screen print on display at the moment. Um, I do have two other prints in my collection, um, but I do um, find again her aesthetically pleasing. She, you know, she's a very important, I think, British contemporary female artist who is actually, you know, becoming a bit more. Uh, she, you know, she's becoming very iconic and a bit of a legend. There are something like um, 20 or 25 internationally recognised artists in Cambridge. Um, are, are, are you um, are you connecting with them at all and, and exhibiting their work? In the, lo- the local yeah, artists, that that's, that is a, a plan for yeah, me, yeah, definitely, yeah, yeah. further down the line. Yeah. I would love to be able to work with some local artists. Um, I mean, I only technically opened this April when... Uh, when the lockdown was lifted so it's um yeah i think next year it's it's the future plan that i would like to display these local artists amongst again the kind of more blue chip artists and the natural history Uh, what was the plan with this exhibition that you've opened this evening what what are you putting on show and what are you hoping people will take away from it so it's it's basically a chance to see in the flesh some you know big important contemporary art names you know such as bridget riley keith herring banksy all of these artists making a bit of a difference um mostly british contemporary artists very you know very of the moment and you know not a lot of people get to see these original pieces or you know, legitimate, authentic pieces under one roof, um, as well as getting to view a meteorite or a dinosaur bone. You know, it's it should be like a. I guess I just want it to be an extraordinary experience for, for people. You know, one roof and you get to tick all of these things off your box. Are, are you going to be doing a, <clears throat> a chain of exhibitions um, which are extraordinary? Is that, is that the, the plan? I would like all ex- exhibitions to be extraordinary, yes. I mean, I think the next plan for me, I mean, I, I plan to do probably three to four big exhibitions a year, which I can put my all into, and in the interim just rotate it with new works and objects. Um, the next plan for me is I want to do like a female-focused exhibition in March for International Female yeah. Month. Um, where it will combine some local artists and some, you know, quite established female artists and have them all together. But again, it will be my personal choice as to what I think is extraordinary and believe that people will will feel the same, or hope at least, anyway. Well, it's great to welcome an upcoming new gallery to the Cambridge Experience, and and I I, I can hear that everybody's really enjoying themselves here. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, thank you. And that brings us to the end of this edition of Cambridge Arts Roundup. I'm Simon Burton, and I hope you'll join me again for more art adventures in creative Cambridge.